everyone, welcome back to this episode of the podcast. Now, we are not sponsored by the Cash App. That's right, we're not sponsored by the Cash App. However, you can use the Cash App to help support the podcast. Use the code RVWNQBS to get $5 for free. When you send your first $5, Life with Josh and Amir will also get $5 for absolutely free. That's right. But for those of you that don't know about the Cash App, it's one of the best apps for sending and receiving money. It's the number one finance app in the App Store, and it comes with something called the Cash Card. That's right. Now, the Cash Card isn't a credit card. Rather, it's the most powerful debit card on the planet. The crash, crash, crash Cash Card is the only debit card with Boost, a unique money-saving feature invented by the Cash App. Now, you can select Boost in your Cash App to save 10% or more at Whole Foods, Shake Shack, Chipotle, Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A, Domino's, and coffee shops when you swipe your Cash Card. I still gotta go to Whole Foods, dude. That's okay. Apparently, it's great, but it's expensive as hell. Gotta With the cash card, you save 10%. Spend $100, save 10 And the coffee shop, which is great, too. Takes a dollar off at any coffee shop, including Dunkin' and Starbucks, so you save a dollar on every cup of coffee you buy. If you're like me and you drink a ton of coffee throughout the year, you buy 300 cups of coffee a year, right? You save $300. That means you could be saving upwards of 20%. Insanity. We're not even sponsored by the Cash App, and here we are telling you how great it is. And if that doesn't say something, I don't know what will. So, you can support the podcast by simply using the Cash App. Just enter the code RVWNQBS to receive $5 for the first five that you send, and for us to receive $5 as well. You can also find us directly on the Cash App using our Cash Tag, Josh and Amir Podcast, all one word. You can help us recuperate the cost of our equipment, that is mics, mixer, boom stands, mounts, etc., and help us invest in the future of this podcast. And bring you more awesome guests like Indiria. Now, today, ladies and gentlemen, we talk to Indiria Gillespie. She's very passionate about advocating for the awareness and education of the underrepresentation of black, Hispanic, and Native American minorities in the United States on the bone marrow registry. That's right. Now, every year, a lot of people die waiting for a bone marrow transplant, and Indiria started her own nonprofit, Angels in Disguise, to help raise awareness for this issue. They have the lowest match rate, partially due... 23%. Right, 23%, partially due to the diversity of the black community, right? Black isn't just, you know, as she said, monolithic. Right. And we go really in-depth into it in the podcast. She also recently just got her PhD, and she has started loads of small businesses. Right. Uh, we had a very beautiful conversation, and I'm really excited for everybody to hear it. Without further ado, Indira Gillespie. Hello. This episode of the podcast. Philosophy. Politics. Art. Music. Morality. Philosophy. 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 Religion. Art. Aliens. Morality. Conspiracy. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Awesome. So I heard that you were on the radio this past weekend. Yes, I was on KDEEFM mm-hmm. on Full Circle from 10 to 11 a.m. talking about the underrepresentation and underutilization of Blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans on the bone marrow registry. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. Um, this, now, this is an interesting thing because I feel like this is something a lot of people don't really know is an issue, right? Yes. So. Um, a lot of people have never even heard of the bone marrow registry. So if they've never heard of it, obviously, they don't know that there is an issue. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you went over, you got into this for your, your dis- dissertation and your thesis work, right? What, 
got you interested in it? How'd you find out about it? Well, actually, I it goes back much further than that. Okay. Um, back in 1994, I was working for an insurance company, and um, my boss at the time, his son had leukemia, mm-hmm. and um, he was African American, and he could not find a bone marrow match. So they did a bone marrow drive at my job and I had no clue. I had never heard of the bone marrow registry at the time, nor had I even heard of leukemia. And, uh, but I joined the bone marrow registry at that time. I was not a match. That was back in 1994 and I was not a match for the young boy. However, in 2000, I w- received a letter from Be The Match Bone Marrow Registry mm-hmm. stating that I was a match for a 46-year-old African-American with myeloid dysplastic syndrome. And um, they put me on notice because when a person is diagnosed with a blood-borne cancer, they immediately try to find a match for them, mm-hmm. even though he's not ready for the trans- transplant. And the reason why is because all patients must exhaust chemotherapy and radiation first. The bone marrow is actually the last life-saving effort that's available for a person after chemotherapy and radiation. Right. So I wasn't called to actually do the procedure until 2001, which was a whole year later after being informed. And uh, I did the surgical process. And after I did that... I realized, you know, I'm a research hog and I started researching and I found out that minorities have a very low match rate and more specifically, blacks have a match rate of only 23%, which is the lowest of any ethnicity in the world. And then the next um, percentage that's closest to African-Americans is still double that rate. And that's 46% for Hispanics. And 57% for Native Americans. So that kind of sparked a drive in me. And I started volunteering, doing op-ed pieces for local um, newspapers and things of that nature, giving presentations to black audiences and other minority audiences. And then I received a call in 2015 And it was kind of interesting because I was away on a business trip in Los Angeles. I was staying at the Biltmore Hotel and it was about eight o'clock at night and I was laying across my bed and I received a phone call and I almost didn't answer it because I didn't know the number, but I did. And the lady identified herself as Be The Match Bone Marrow Registry and she said, I just want to let you know that you're a match. And knowing that... The chances of you being a match once you're on the registry is so low, and especially as a minority. And then your chances of being a match a second time is just unheard of. Mm. So I thought it was a joke. So <laughs> I thought it was my best friend, Priscilla, in Chicago. Right. So I said, Priscilla, stop playing with me. And I hung up the phone. Oh, no. And oh. they called back. <laughs> And I was flabbergasted, and so were they once I informed them that, hey, do you realize this is my second match? Mm. And um, I, that moment, that changed the trajectory of my career as well as my doctoral studies. Mm. At that time, I was just um, in my first semester of my doctorate degree. 
and I was going to do my dissertation on something so benign, like on shoelaces or something, oh. uh, <laughs> you know, uh, skills gaps. And I, I said, no, I need to do something more profound, something that could actually save lives. And that's when I changed my dissertation topic early. Good thing it was just in my first semester. And, um, and after I finished my doctorate degree, Angels in Disguise was born and I'm dedicating my time full time to creating awareness about the bone marrow registry Mm -hmm. and the black, Hispanic and Native American communities to save more lives. Right. Wow. So you must be really busy then. I'm extremely busy, more busy than I thought I would be because I've had startup businesses before mm-hmm. and I know how hectic that could be, but I had no clue with this nonprofit thing because this is my first time being a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So I've been trying to educate myself at the same time, trying to build a brand and try to fundraise, which is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So with your not-for-profit, you guys go all over the United States, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I am um, a national nonprofit, 501c3. Mm. That's, that's awesome. awesome. Yeah, that's totally cool. <laughs> that's beautiful. I mean, you gave us a lot there. Yes. But um, so what were you doing before you, for your, uh, for your dissertation? What was your degree? Um, prior to earning my doctorate degree, yeah. I have a, um, MBA, um, with a emphasis in marketing. Okay. And then oh. my doctorate degree is in education with the, um, emphasis in organizational leadership. Okay. So how did your dissertation work fit into your degree? My, I'm sorry, say that again. The, sorry, the work for your dissertation, how did it fit into your degree? Well, um, my school, even though it was an education-based um, doctorate degree, mm-hmm. the University of Pacific is very innovation-oriented. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I was able to do the type of study that I wanted to do, as opposed to doing it on something K through 12, like the, gaps, the skills gaps, like I mentioned. Right. Right. And I use creative thinking, um, I'm sorry, design thinking to um, guide my process. And that was very innovative as well. So it was embraced at my school, mm. um, which was very great. And it has... Um, brought a lot of attention to my study. That's super cool. Did you ever teach? I did. Um, I've always taught as a secondary um, occupation. Mm. Um, I was always full-time management at the community college level, but then on the side I taught so I could save money to travel the world. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Did you ever get around to, to traveling? I haven't done all seven continents yet. I'm missing a couple. And I think in November I'm going to conquer one, but I did, I, I visited, I've done, um, Australia, the Australian continent. I visited Australia, um, New Zealand and Fiji. And then of course I was born on the American continent, um, the, uh, North, which is what North American continent. And I've done germ, um, not Germany, the European continent, which included Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Netherlands, London, Italy, and France. 
And okay. I'm not sure if I'm missing one. But I still have to do an Asian continent, which in November, I'm doing Cambodia and Thailand. That's cool. Oh, and yeah, then really cool. Antarctica and South America's left will be wow. left. Wow. So you're, yeah. you're going to be all over the place. I'm then. trying. That's super cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I, tell, is. I tell people I was born super, super rich in my head. And I am mm. desperately trying to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. So... You mentioned that you'd been involved in a lot of startup businesses before. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, my startup businesses were totally unrelated to um, Angels in Disguise. Okay. I did um, government contracting on the side. Whenever I'm laid off or left-sized or downsized, everything but upsized, I would get back into government contracting. Um, like more recently and currently, I have a government contract with the um, Department of Defense as a sub subcontractor okay cool cool so was it hard i mean i assume it was pretty hard to like start your not-for-profit but you know what was it like like in those early days because i know you guys are pretty new but yes where, where did you start with the whole thing um i still call it the early days until i started getting some money um <laughs> <laughs> yes but um you start off with um getting i, I hired a consultant to do the nonprofit forms and, and application processes. Because again, like I said, I don't know what I don't know. And I didn't want to make mistakes and elongate that period as far as getting that certification. Mm-hmm. So you have to get some type of um, certification um, from the state of California, as well as on the federal side, the IRS. And they're mm-hmm. the ones that actually give you the 501c3 determination uh, letter. And normally that takes four weeks to four months, and mine took 11 months plus days. Ooh. Yes. Why was that? I don't know. They didn't, there was no kickbacks. Nothing was wrong with the application or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was just the government. They're just taking their time. They're slow. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that must have been frustrating. Very frustrating. Um, they said that you're only allowed to call them once every 30 days to check on status. Mm. What the heck? So I figured if I owed them money, if they wanted something from me, they wouldn't wait 30 days to call me. So I started harassing them and they said the squeaky wheel. So after I started harassing them and calling them constantly, it was approved like in 10 days after the harassment began. Yeah, that's terrible that you have to do that though. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's it's kind of ridiculous. Right. So it's a so just to clarify it. So when you start a nonprofit, you have to go through the process. So that way, it's technically a nonprofit, correct? Not a business. Gotcha. Because you can't um, you can't fundraise until right. after you receive that. Because otherwise, whatever donations you receive, and you're not a nonprofit, the people that donated the funds can't write it off on their taxes because it was mm-hmm. not a donation to a nonprofit. Gotcha. Right. And you guys focus on a lot of the research aspect of things. I know you mentioned before that, you know, you like to do a lot of research yourself. You're a researcher. Um, What kind of work do you, does the non-profit, not-for-profit, non-profit? Yes. Non-profit. What is, what kind of research do you guys focus on or what do you do? Well, we focus on non-clinical research, so which means we don't have a lab and we're not drawing blood or doing anything technical like that. But what I do is I do surveys 
to find out what are the hindrances people have towards joining the registry? What are their fears? Um, how can they overcome those fears? What would it take for us to help them to narrow those gaps and join the registry? And so it's more of a, it's a non-clinical, quantitative, and sometimes qualitative um, research. Right. Because you guys, you have two things working against you, right? You have l- low match rates, and then you also have not enough people who are willing to put themselves on the registry, right? Well, actually, the, their, their non-match rate is mm-hmm. a problem, but it's due to two th- problems um, okay. or two issues. And one is there's not enough people on the registry. And we, when we focus on the three minority groups that Angels focuses on, for instance, for African-Americans, the match, I mean, I'm sorry, the population on the registry is only 7%, mm. but the population in the United States is 13.4%. Right. So that's a huge disparity. And then for Hispanics, um, on the registry is 10%. However, in the U.S. population, it's over 17%. So that's a huge disparity there, too. And only Native Americans have the closest gap that where it's very narrow between the population on the registry, which is 1%, and then in the United States is 1.6%. But because of that underrepresentation, that causes low match rates. And then the second issue that causes low match rates is the HLA genetic marker. Okay. And um, that is what determines a match. So you match the HLA marker with the donor as well as with the recipient. Once that match, let's back it up. So the HLA genetic marker is hereditary, which means over 90% of matches occur within the same ethnicity. Right. So that means blacks match with blacks, Hispanics match with Hispanics, and go on down the line. And the problem with blacks is that most people look at black as being monolithic. And I'm sure this occurs in the Hispanic community, too, Mm -hmm. where they assume that Hispanic is Hispanic when there's various, a lot of variations. You know, there's Puerto Ricans, there's the ones in Brazil, there's Mexicans. Right. And there's a lot of there's more diversity. Exactly. And that's the same with blacks. People think it's monolithic, monolithic, black is black is black, and that's not so. We exist on every continent in the world other than Antarctica that I know of. <laughs> and, um, and because of that, we're the most diverse ethnicity in the world, which makes it more difficult for us to match. Okay. And to give an example oh, of that, on the registry, there are 11 million people on Be The Match, bone marrow registry. Seven million are white. And they have a 77% match rate with 7 million people. So think of the three sevens. 7 uh, million people get 77%. Right. So for blacks, there's less than 800,000. So you would think, okay, well, if we get blacks up to 7 million, they'll have a 77% match rate. And that's not so. Because the HLA genetic marker is so diverse... We need 22 million people on the registry to get that same 77% match rate. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, wow. So, it's because of the genetic pre- or genetic diversity, rather, that yes. makes it so difficult, right? And underrepresentation. Right. Yes. So, those two things in combination make it very, very difficult 
for people to get matched. Right. Yes. And then um, there's a couple more things. That's on, on the be the match side, on the uh, registry side, what the problems are. Mm-hmm. Internally, within our community, we have issues as well. Mm-hmm. So those issues, I call them KMC gaps. So K stands for lack of knowledge. And that knowledge is four-pronged. So there's a lack of knowledge about the bone marrow registry itself. And if they are aware of the bone marrow registry... They don't understand the matching process, the donation process, or the critical need for blacks to join the registry. So there's a lot of myths around what, well, how do they match people? Do they take my bone marrow and they only give it to a certain ethnic group because they are considered the majority or superior or whatever Mm. the problem is? And so they have that lack of knowledge when it comes to the matching. As far as donation. I've heard stories such as how do they get the bone marrow out? Do they cut off your leg and take it out the center of your leg bone? Right. Um, It's just crazy stories. Um, People um, have fear about the pain factor and things of that nature. And then as far as the critical need, they're not aware that blacks match with blacks. So they're not. They don't know that the need is for us specifically to join the registry right right. so for m there's a lack of motivation and the lack of motivation um comes from the fact that um they believe again that their bone marrow will go to a different source and not to save their own people or um, black people in need specifically right and then they think um that donating could harm their health so that's m c is cultural issues And I'm not sure if you are aware in the black community, there's a huge distrust of the medical community. Mm -hmm. And that is due to um, us being subjected as um, being guinea pigs um, for medical advancement without our knowledge and being abused by the medical community for centuries. And so there's a huge distrust there. So we have to overcome those issues as well. So how do you work to dispel a lot of those those myths and those misconceptions, yeah. right? Because you talked about one thing is knowledge. Like, so for knowledge, for example, when you go out and you give your talks, education must be a, a huge part, you know, of what you're working on, right? And then awareness, too. So how exactly do you go about that? So during my study, I did a few focus groups. And I felt like, okay... I will be doing my people a huge disservice if I were to just look at textbooks and say, well, this is what the textbooks say, and this is how we overcome that. So what I did was I brought in focus groups filled with black people between the ages of 18 and 61, because those are the ages in which you could join the registry and donate. Mm-hmm. And I asked them questions um, around the knowledge, motivation, and cultural issues. And I asked them stuff like, okay, well, what information do you need in order for you to decide to join the registry? Mm. And then I asked them questions, what were the knowledge that they need in order for them, if matched, to go forward with the donation process? Mm-hmm. And I had them do a lot of brainstorming exercises as a group. And once we completed all the brainstorming exercises with the questions for K, M, and C, I had them categorize them into various groups. And then once they categorized all of their ideas, I had them to rank their top five ideas. 
for each of those questions. Mm -hmm. And then after they did that, so it was a long process. So after they did that, I had them develop a prototype or a tool of what what item or what tool could they use to overcome the gaps for K, M, and C that included all of those ideas that they had come up with. And once they came up with that prototype, I had them pitch their prototype and we voted on what was the best prototype. So ultimately it, um, it culminated into what we call the bone marrow educational symposium. And that's a big word. Symposium. Symposium. (laughs) Yes. And um, well, if you say seminar or class or workshop, you get the problem. They don't want to do it. Yeah, because that means you're being lectured and talked to and it's not interactive. So symposium is more of an interactive process. So I took that um, symposium that they had developed and I took it into the classroom. And um, at Sac City, I did it in one of their African-American studies class. Mm-hmm. I've done it at a women's, um, a, a women's conference and other area and other um, settings as well to test it. And I must say that when the bone marrow registry do bone marrow drives, when they just approach um, specifically blacks because of the mistrust, when they specifically um, come up to them and solicit them to join the registry, they get a zero to 5% registration rate. Yes, because they're not giving them the information, the knowledge, because they're just having a two minute conversation with them. Right, and that's, right. and it sh- shows that they need more. And so when I do my 90 minute symposium, I get a 15 to 30% registration rate. Right. Much larger. And that is so in the African-American or black and Hispanic communities. Oh, wow. wow. Yes. That is that is amazing. (laughs) Do you think part of that has to do with the fact because you were saying before when they try to get these register rates and it's zero to five percent in this two minute conversation. Do you think part of it is the fact that, yeah, you're doing these, you know, these long hour and a half things. But do you think part of it is the fact that you are one of them? You're you are. You know, you're an African-American woman. You're talking to these people. Do you think that that also plays a role of, hey, I can see someone that I can relate to? Okay, this is just some random, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? Certainly. And studies even show that as well. When you're recruiting people for anything that's medical-based, people that are being recruited want to be recruited by someone that looks like them. Right. right. And and that's just the, the a known fact. So that does help in my favor and along with other things. So not only am I black, but I'm speaking from experience. I am a two-time bone marrow donor. Right. And there are two ways to donate bone marrow. And I've done both processes. Mm. So I can speak from experience. And you can ask me questions about any process as far as whether or not it hurt. Or um, what, what process did I undertake? Um, what was my recovery? You can ask me anything because I've undergone right. it. And not only that, when you do your dissertation study on any specific um, subject matter, you're considered an expert in that field. So here I am. I am also a doctor speaking as an expert about the bone marrow registry. So all of those things together uh, might contribute to that 30%. Of course, yeah. So you can give people a real answer and ease their fears and they know that they can trust you. Yes. Yes. And be be comfortable 
right? Yes. And it, confident in their decision. It's part of building the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's probably a good thing to see from the African-American community to see that, oh, okay, there's somebody that has done this in the medical field because you said there's that mistrust. Mm-hmm. And to see somebody that is in that field and again, oh, okay, I guess it kind of helps to ease that. Maybe tension is the right word, but um, mistrust. Yes. And I'm not in the medical field per se. I have gotcha. my doctorate is a PhD, mm-hmm. not an MD. Not an MD, okay. Right. Yeah. You said that there was two different methods by which they extract the bone marrow. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Okay. So yeah. the one that they've done the longest and the one that people know about is um, called bone marrow donation. Right. And so what they do, the surgery is done with you laying on your stomach. You are put under because it is considered a surgical process. So one is a surgical process and one is a non-surgical process. So even before you get to that state... So no matter what process you're going to do, they send you through a full medical review. And that takes a while to do. So it's not like, oh, you get the call, you're a match, go to the doctor now and donate. It doesn't happen like that. So they schedule various appointments for you. And during those appointments, and with me being a female, my appointments, the only difference between my appointments versus a male's appointment is that they give you pregnancy tests to make sure you're not pregnant before surgery. So um, the first... um, medical checkup that you undertake they give you um an x-ray they take lots of blood because they want to test to make sure you're safe you're okay you're healthy they want to make sure you don't have any cancers yourself because that would kill the patient and um then there's a several interviews one of the interviews is a lifestyle interview so they ask you questions like what type, you know, your sexual history, whether or not you use protective sex and things of that nature. Because again, um, any illness whatsoever could kill this person. And then they do a medical history interview. And that's when they ask you, are your parents still alive? If they're not alive, what did they die of? What were what type of diseases did they have? Like diabetes, high blood pressure, so anything. It's, it's very thorough. It's very, very thorough, thorough. And they go back three generations. So oh, they want to wow. know about your parents, right. your grandparents, and your great-grandparents. Not everybody can go that far. But if you can, that's more helpful to them and to the patient. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, while you're doing all of this, the patient... Usually by this time, at least for both of my recipients, had undergone um, chemotherapy and radiation for almost a year in an effort to save their life. Mm-hmm. So they've gone through much more pain than, than this surgical process that I was about to undertake um, as far as my first donation. And they kill off all of their white blood cells. So if any organism gets into their system the smallest thing even right? it could kill them so they're in a very precarious situation um, at that point so if you do become a bone marrow match it is very very important that you go on and through the process and not change your mind because if you change your mind you are giving that person a death sentence and as a, an african-american and a hispanic american if um if you are a match to someone, you are normally their only match because our match rates are so low. Right. So do not join the registry unless you are willing to go forward. 
So to continue on with the process, the surgical process. So after you've undergone all of those medical checkups, if everything is okay with you, then they schedule the surgical um, procedure. And again, they put you under, you land on your stomach, and they aspirate the bone marrow from your pelvic bone. So on your pelvic bone is the largest bone with the most dense uh, bone marrow density. So that's why they choose that bone. Mm -hmm. And by law, they're only allowed to take out 5%. That's the maximum. And your body regenerates the bone marrow in three to five weeks. So it's not like it's lost, it's gone, like a kidney and never coming right. back. Right, it, it comes back. It comes back. And you're not feeling ill or anything during that process. It's kind of like donating blood. You don't feel the lost blood. Right. And so they aspirate it out of your system. I forgot I should have brought the pictures. They took pictures of mine. And Ooh. yeah, and uh, they, I had a funny group. I, mine was done at the Sutter Cancer Center okay. Hospital downtown on L Street. And at that time, I had a phobia about being intubated. And I told them, could you please not put that tube down my throat until I'm under? Not knowing that's when they do it. It's, right. Yeah. So they right. made it seem like they were doing me this special favor. And, and I said, Don't, and take it out before I wake up. And so in the mail, a couple of weeks later, I received this little photo album of them putting the tube down my throat, <laughs> them oh, taking right. a tube out of my throat. And so they were really funny and comical. Yeah. But um, so after they take the um, bone marrow out, you go into recovery. You don't have to spend the night in a hotel. It is an outpatient surgery. And you don't pay for anything. That's the most important thing. The recipient in insurance pays for all surgical procedures. Wow. They even pay for your mileage to and from your doctor's appointments into the surgical process. You are, you do not pay for anything. So they really take care of you. They really take <laughs> yeah. care of you. And um, when I came to in recovery, they the nurses come and they say, hey, you know, I mean, I had the best team. And they were like, I know you don't like hospital food. Do you want me to go out and get you some food? You know? Oh, wow. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody's so appreciative because you're saving a life. Right. right. And so um, about you stay in uh, recovery for a couple of hours until because I felt a little woozy from the anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And then once that's over, you go home and you wait for three weeks. They give you your first, they call you, um, the, the bone marrow registry call you after 24 hours to check on you, see how you're doing. Mm -hmm. They call you in three days, one week, three weeks, one month, three months, and six months. Mm -hmm. And during that three week call, they let you know how your recipient is doing. Um, they can't tell you very much because of HIPAA laws, but um, at the 21-day point, I did receive notice via mail that my recipient had died. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and partial, and I took it personally because when I had my medical checkup, they put me on hold for two weeks because they discovered that I was um, slightly anemic. Okay. So they pumped me up with iron for two weeks and to bring my levels up. And so I kind of took it personal that, um, you know, if I wasn't anemic, maybe, you know, he would have survived because maybe he couldn't wait those two weeks. Right. 
So I kind of took that personal for a while. That must have been tough. Yeah, it was. And then, you know, not only that, you know, because you are informed about this person a year ago. Right. And then you get these little calls and stuff saying, hey, are you still um, prepared to do this and all of that? So when you're going through this process, you're really rooting for this person. It's almost like a family member. Mm-hmm. So when you f- receive that notice, I mean, you, you feel like a family member or a friend died. You lost somebody. Yeah. Right, right. So when I got that call the second time, I was before because I knew I might have a year before I have to do it. Right. And even though doctors tell me to take my iron pills and stuff like that, I'm not good at it. But when I got that second call, I was like, she's not dying. I'm taking my iron pills. (laughs) So I was taking my iron. Mm -hmm. So the second time, to get back to your question in a long way. um, That's great. (laughs) (laughs) The second procedure is called, sometimes they refer to it as PBSC, and that's peripheral blood. Before we get to the second procedure, Mm -hmm. can you kind of clarify what the process of aspiration is? Because that's one thing that kind of went over my head. Okay, so again, so you're under Mm -hmm. and you're laying on your stomach and they use these long, long needles and they, I hate to say drill it because that sounds painful, but they penetrate your um, pelvic bone and they aspirate it out. So it's like a sucking motion, Okay, just like when you draw blood, Mm, So, but it's just with a bigger, bigger, thicker needle Right, and it just draws your um bone marrow out that way okay okay i see i see now you said the second process is called pbs it it, some people refer to it as pbsc okay and that's peripheral blood stem cells however it's still bone marrow right and so that process is much easier so and that's a new process and i think it's uh, about six years old less big needles mistaken well, <laughs> it is so, let me tell you, I, I would, I could do this process every month. As soon as my bone marrow regenerate in three to five weeks, I could do it again. And so what this one, what they do is someone comes to your house, um, a nurse could come to your house or your job every day for five days at the same time. It's very important that you receive this shot called Phil Jack, Phil Graston. Okay. And uh, Phil Graston makes your body produce extra stem cells, bone marrow cells. And um, you can feel it in your larger bones in your body. It feels like a slight ache or something, but nothing big, nothing major. Right. And if you're in pain or if it bothers you, they'll give you something for it. Uh, Again, paid by the recipient. And then on the fifth day, you go to the hospital where you're scheduled to um, have your procedure. Mm -hmm. So my second procedure was done at the Stanford um, Cancer Hospital down in wherever Stanford is. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's Palo Alto. Okay. And um, once you arrive there... Um, they put you in these luxury chairs, like in the movies, the mm. luxury chair movie yeah. place. And then they give you a television screen, and it's kind of like on an arm, sort of like this mic. And you have access to HBO, Cinemax, oh, and all these shoot. different channels. So they just give you the whole hookup. They give you the whole hookup because they want you to be relaxed. And for me, that was the hookup because... At that point, I was only in my 
first semester of my doctorate degree, mm-hmm. but for the whole three years of my doctorate degree, I unhooked my television, didn't watch TV. And you were just too busy? or I did not want the distraction because mm-hmm. I'm a procrastinator. So I took away what would I knew would be my downfall. I feel you there. I'm a yeah. big procrastinator. Me too. <laughs> I am. I can't. I can't have any video games. I can't have none of that. You know, I got to delete apps off my phone, right? Because something you got to get work done, right? Well, you need to bring me back then to talk about procrastination because I have lots of tools on how to combat that, and I've done really? presentations at conferences for that as well. Uh, I and mine worked so well as a procrastinator. I finished a four-year doctoral program in three years. That's kind of oh. amazing. <laughs> and yeah. did it summa cum laude, the right. highest honors. Right. Yeah. Um, That's com- impressive. Combating procrastination. <laughs> so. Um, Your proof. Yes, <laughs> at the proof. So getting back to the um, original conversation. Right. Um, which was what was the question now? <laughs> so we're going over the second procedure. You were talking about the stem cell oh, yes. process, right? So the movies. Yeah, I felt like right. I was in the movies, and so that was a treat for me because I was like having withdrawal. You know, that was my first semester without TV, mm-hmm. and um, so they have all this stuff there to distract you, and they put one needle in one arm, and it branches off into a whole bunch of different tubes. And so they're drawing out your blood. I call it the vampire effect, but it's not gory like that. But they're basically, or I don't know anything about dialysis, but that's what I equate it to. Mm. So they're taking all your blood out and it goes into a machine behind you, your luxury chair. And it extracts your stem cells and um, bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And then your blood is returned to you in the other arm. So there's no waste. There's no anemia afterwards because you're getting all your blood back. Nothing is taken away other than those stem cells. And to do that, um, on average, it takes four to six hours. For me, it took about six to seven hours because I have very small veins and I have low blood pressure. So the blood is going a little slower than most Mm -hmm. people's when when it's pumped out. But you're watching all these movies. Right. So it doesn't matter. And then when you get up, there's no stiffness in your pelvic bone. You don't have the anesthesia, you know. So you, you just feel a lot better. You right? feel a lot better. And I'm not saying if you get the call, don't do it. If they say, hey, we want you to do this right. process. Because it's not like you hurt forever. You don't hurt when you come to. There is a little ache. Getting back to the first procedure. Right. You do have a little ache for like two or three days. And when I mean by ache. You just don't want someone to bump into you. And if you drop something on the floor, you're like, you're staying there. Because <laughs> you don't want to bend that pelvic area. Right. And then um, coming up and down the stairs, I have a two-story home. I would come up and down the stairs like a one-year-old. You know, I would sit on the step and I'll scoop my butt down each step like that just to try to keep my pelvic bone stiff and in place. Yeah. Um, so I just did that for a few days. Um, so it's not like any extreme pain or anything like that because it's not like they cut right. into you or anything. Right. So getting back to um, the non-surgical procedure, the procedure itself is called aphresis. Okay. And so once they do, they 
take out the bone marrow and you get your blood back. And, and it's all done at the same time. So it's sucking up the blood and at the same time you see it's, blood going It's literally into the just other a arm. loop, right? A it goes loop. it goes mm-hmm. through the extractor to take the stem cells out and then you get everything back. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's right. interesting. And, and then when it's over, there's no recovery room or anything. You're just good to go. You just get up and you go. Right. Also, I must stipulate too, um, when you go to the surgical procedure, you don't drive yourself. They have a driver that comes pick you up. Oh. Um, for the one that was done in Sacramento, the surgical procedure, since I live in the SAC area, I live in Elk Grove, they just um, drive you to the hospital and then drive you back. But for um, the one in um, Stanford, mm-hmm. because that's much further away, it's like a three-hour drive, a driver comes and pick me up the day before. And they okay. pick you up in car, nice, 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 nice cars. Um, okay. Yeah, and um, and then they drove me to a hotel. The recipient insurance paid for it. There's no reimbursement, anything, because you don't pay for anything up front. Nothing. Right. Right. So they take me to a hotel for me to stay overnight, and then the driver comes back and picks me up again around six a.m. Takes me in time to get to the procedure in time by seven, and then they're there. To pick you up um, after the procedure as well. Mm-hmm. If you're hungry, they'll go t- take you wherever you want to go to eat and things of that nature. I mean, it's all about you, right? Because um, you know they know you're doing something that you really don't have to do, and you're not right. getting paid for it. So they they treat you like a hero. Yeah, they yeah. do. And and speaking of that, you feel like a hero after um, my second bone marrow donation. Mm-hmm. I received the call on my twenty first day, and um, totally opposite of the first one. Um, she was doing that. She okay. She was a female, forty three years old with non Hodgkin's lymphoma, which okay. is a really bad one. Okay, and um, she was considered cured in twenty one days. Holy. Wow. And yeah, and she was breaking records. She was already out of the hospital. Normally they're in the hospital for several months. Right. And she showed no signs of rejection. Wow. That's amazing. That is the complete polar opposite. I know. And and just feel the goosebumps still today talking about it. And my procedure was December 1st, 2015. And I am still like, oh my gosh, the, the goosebumps knowing that. You saved a life. Right. I mean, yeah. It is so, so incredible. It yeah. must have been. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that you lose a lot of people? Like when they find out that they are a match, is that a place where you lose people? Well, if you can get them on the registry, um, there is a high attrition rate. And mm. I call it post-match attrition rate. Because after they've told, they're told that they're a match, they change their mind. And, and I just think that is the most inhumane thing to do at that point um if you have any doubts don't get on a registry if you have doubts once you get on the registry call them up and have them take you off the registry before you are match right don't give someone false hope for life right and depending on what point you change your mind you could be potentially killing them Mm. So, uh, yeah, and unfortunately, that is the the point in where you lose most people is after a match has been determined. Right, because you convince them initially, but then over time, they think about it more and more. They probably psych themselves out, right? Yes, and also because, you know, they have that peer pressure. So a lot of bone marrow drives are done at colleges and things of that nature. 
And if they see their friends joining, then they might join because of that with no intent of donating. They just do it on impulse. They do it on impulse. And and then, you know, they forget to call them up to change their mind. And or um, some people, it's not because they just changed their mind. It's because they forgot to let the registry know that they've developed... um, medical conditions that would prevent them from donating as well. For instance, if they've developed um, diabetes that's uncontrollable, because you can donate with diabetes if it's in control, but if it's not under control, you can't. Or if you've already had a cancer yourself, you can't donate. So sometimes, because people can be on there for the duration of their lives and never get called. Um, so you, sometimes you forget, you know, to call them and say, Hey, you know, I've had X, Y, Z disease, or I have this now and, um, or autoimmune disease like lupus or something. Right. And I can't donate and they forget to do that. So, right. And then when they match, so that, that must be very, very tragic then. Right. Because this is like, this is it. Yeah. Right. Right. Because like you were saying before. Uh, the the bone marrow transplant is the last option, right? The last option. It's the last option. Do you find that there is a difference between uh, sex as well? Like, is there are there different match rates between males and females, for example, in the African American community, or do you find that they're just about the same? Um, the match rate the match rate itself isn't higher or lower when it comes to males and females, but as far okay. as the post match attrition rates more females follow through and do the donation more so than males. Mm, and Go women. <laughs> and it could be because, you know, um, women, we have more empathy and sympathy and right. stuff like that. And yeah. we're more emotionally, we're emotional beings. Not saying that men don't have any emotions, but... Um, that it's different, could, right? Yeah. It's a little different, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Sorry. Yeah. So what are some of the different reasons that someone would need a bone marrow transplant? A bloodborne cancer. Okay. So all of the leukemias, the lymphomas, um, and then there's a host of other um, cancers, but they are bloodborne cancers. Cancers mm-hmm. that are in the blood or attack the blood or the production of blood. Okay. And as of April, um, the FDA approved utilizing a bone marrow transplant to cure a sickle cell disease, mm. which is prevalent in the black and Hispanic communities. Mm, right. Yes. Not keep them, um, you know, half baked alive or anything <laughs> like that or, yeah. or um, kind of you know, stop the pain or anything. No, it cures them of sickle cell disease. What is sickle cell disease exactly? Sickle cell disease is also a blood, it's not a blood cancer, but it's a problem within the blood cells. Mm -hmm. And that's when the red blood cells are sickled. So they have like a curvature. Okay. And that curvature causes the, the blood cells to get stuck in the veins and pathways. They can clump up which can cause a lot of pain. It mm. can cause strokes, heart attacks, things of that nature from blockage. Right. Um, they're in the hospital quite a bit, and it causes a host of other health issues that 
I don't, I'm not privy to all of them, but I, that, that's one of the things I am aware of. And you can die from sickle cell disease at a young age. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, Does so, that happen a lot or? More than what we hear about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because for one, um, we're in America, you know, and this is no way to sugarcoat it, but a lot of diseases, if it's prevalent to the minority community, it's not talked about much. Yeah. So, therefore, you don't hear about it, and there's a, a lack of awareness. So, it's not on the news. Right. Um, but, yes, it is a big problem. Right. Yeah. No, that's definitely true. I remember hearing about, I forget who he was, but I was listening to another podcast, and he studied uh, diseases, specifically tropical diseases. And in his studies, he discovered a parasite that affected somewhere in the ballpark of 10% of my people minorities in the united states and it was something that just nobody knew about and that could be easily cured but was often not diagnosed because there was no people just didn't know about there it. was no prevalent medical knowledge about right. it so people would die will die do die today from it all the time um mostly just due to lack of knowledge yeah right but um i'm curious if you had any problems with the government and with the stem cell procedure or the removing the stem cells from the blood because i know in the past the government has been kind of weird about stem cells and things involving stem cells you know um treating it kind of as like a drug once it's removed from your body so i'm just wondering if you have you had any problems with that actually the opposite um there are two bone marrow registries in the united states that are um that service all ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And that is the Gift of Life, which is in Boca Raton, Florida. And then there's Be the Match, which is the largest bone marrow registry in the world with the 11 million registrants. And they're out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They receive the bulk of their money, and I forgot how many millions, from the U.S. Navy. So mm-hmm. obviously the government does not have any problem with stem cells being used to cure bloodborne cancers and sickle cell anemia and other diseases that it can cure. Right. And in your research, do you have you found anything as far as what causes a lot of bloodborne cancers and things of that nature? Well, just as um, with any other cancer, uh, chemotherapy can cause cancer. Really? So, yes. How so, is that? Oh my gosh, because it's a, it's a drug and it's, okay. um, it's, it's very harsh. Um, the side effects when you're taking chemotherapy, you know, how people, they're, they're very weak, they lose weight, they lose their hair, right. they can die from chemotherapy uh, and not the cancer. Right. Um, it's a very harsh drug, but mm. that's all that we have right now. You know, That's in order to try to fight it. Yeah. Yeah. So there was one um, that I had in my Twitter feed. It was an African-American. She was 29 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, is 29 years old. And she had throat cancer. And when she was 20 years old, she beat it with chemotherapy. Okay. But now she has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because of the chemotherapy. And it flared oh. up nine years later. So now she needs a bone marrow transplant. Wow. So it could be caused by many things. The chemotherapy that saved your life can also kill you later. 
Right. It could be caused by environmental issues. Um, it could be caused by... Um, diet? Does diet play a role? I'm not sure if diet plays a role in blood cancer, but it won't hurt to have a good diet. <laughs> Let's just right, say right. that. Because having a poor diet can cause a lot of things. Um, but environment, hereditary... Um, it could be hereditary, hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the only three things that I am aware of. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and science is, you know, still new when it comes to this stuff. They don't know what causes it. Right, right. Yeah. So are you guys, are you kind of like on the cutting edge of this? Because, you know, like I mentioned before, like I don't know anything about chemotherapy. I never, I was not aware that bone marrow transplant transplants were something that were needed you know these are things that i never heard about and i'm sure sure, you know other people listening have probably not heard about other people our age certainly haven't heard about um so when you're going to these health conferences and whatnot how how are you arranging that you know like how are you connecting with all these different people all over the place okay there's several questions in there sorry Um, (laughs) let's let's give me the first one again what did I say? <laughs> Good job, Josh. Um, um, well, you did ask me about um, is this cutting edge. Right. So chemotherapy, um, being from the outside looking in, because like I said, um, I am not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD doctor. Right. But from the outside looking in and listening from my and listening to people and from my research, it's very archaic. It's... Um, it takes away, a lot of people say it takes away their dignity because at that point, you're not living life anymore. You're fighting for your life, but you're not living life because you can't, you're too weak, you're emaciated, your diet is messed up because your body is not absorb, absorbing the nutrients, you can't eat, you're throwing it up, your hair is falling out, you know, all these things. And it's very archaic and you would think chemotherapy was developed how many tens of years ago? Why haven't we come up with something better? Right. You know, so with that still being the first go-to, mm-hmm. I would say we're we're behind, you know, and other people might think we're ahead of time, but I think that's behind. And as far as the bone marrow transplant, I would say that that is cutting edge. Um, bone marrow transplants have been done for quite some time, but for it to be approved and um, bone marrow registries to exist and all of that to really push that effort, um, that hadn't occurred to, um, until 1989. Right. So I would say that is cutting edge. And then the new process, the PBSC process, um, I believe that's very cutting edge because yeah. now they use that 80% of the time over the surgical process. Right. So I would say, yeah, people don't have to have... Um, go under the, you know, and have the these needles um, bored into their pelvic bone, and you could be fully awake. Yeah, right. And conscious and aware, and reading a book or whatever you want to do, <laughs> right. or watch the movies. So I would say um, we're making headway, but I'm not sure if it's cutting edge, especially from the recipient or a patient's point right. of view, they probably right. think, why don't, don't we have a cure? Right. right. Well, right. I was I, I was thinking about this when you were talking about like chemo. So, anyways, I do find it interesting that bone marrow is, because, at least with the blood cancers, does it work more often than um, 
like chemo and things like that in terms of remission and just not having the or cancer receiving anymore. a cured or, status. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. That is very difficult, not because um, I don't know, but there's so many stats. You know, it depends gotcha. on your cancer. It depends on your health when you got the cancer. It depends on your age mm-hmm. um, and whether or not uh, what type of cancer, because some are more aggressive than others. And if you relapsed, even if it was a mild cancer, if it relapsed, it always comes back more fierce. So it really has a lot of different variables there Got to it. measure. So it's difficult to say, you know, what are your chances? If you go on um, American Cancer Society's website, you can get some averages there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's just based on averages with all of the variables lumped in. Got it. So it's not very specific. Could Got you it. ever see... Uh, like a bone marrow transplant or the stem cell, the modern, the more modern version where they do, uh, where they use stem cells being uh, a higher up option on the list. Cause you said right now it's like the last option, mm-hmm. you know, but is, do you think that that's necessarily the best place for it to be? Or sh- do you think it should be higher up and what would it take for it to be higher up? You know, again, not being in a medical field, I, you know, I'm speaking, from a not like a novice um i have no clue but from my point of view i do know that you know chemotherapy they don't see that as being invasive mm-hmm. however it. um to go through the bone marrow donation you basically have to put a person within millimeters of their life so they're probably trying to avoid that for that reason. Okay. Um, and that could be wrong, but that would make sense right. if they're avoiding it as a last choice because you could kill them just killing off the white blood cells to prepare them for the bone marrow donation. Right, right. So it's it's dangerous for the recipient in that Extre- aspect. Extremely. And, and I wouldn't even say it's a cost um, problem, though, because I had a friend recently that had um cancer and every time she had to go to the doctor for chemo it was sixty nine thousand dollars just to receive chemo that day so i can't say that i don't know if it's cost you know if it's a cost issue because I mistakenly received my bill for my second donation mm-hmm. um, for the PBSC, and that one was $26,000. So it's not even invasive. All you did was put a needle in both arms, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what if um, I mistakenly got that bill from the first, you know, the surgical process? Right. How much would that have been? Right. Well, they said back then it would have been $100,000, but now it's well into the $200,000 range. So it's even, it's inflated. It's very expensive. Right. Yeah. Surgeries are very expensive. I had a um, heart surgery when I was born, oh. two days after I was born, and I know that was like beyond it was just so expensive right my parents were saying it was like close to a million dollars because it was a heart surgery and it was very specialized too, it was a very it? yeah it was very specific and specialized heart surgery it was expensive and i'm willing to bet today it's even more expensive oh yes right. and it's scary too because a lot of health insurance policies have they have a one million dollar cap right. right so if you go over that cap or if your treatment goes over that cap 
then you're kind of left out of options. Yeah. Right. Which, which I think is crazy for, um, to be in America, you know, we're not a third world country. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is I, when I received the call from my second donation, my donor, I mean, my first, my second mm-hmm. recipient, mm-hmm. um, three months went by, I hadn't heard from them a couple of more months. So I called and I said, well, Cause I was a little nervous cause I'm taking these iron pills and you know, I right, want to show right. my superhero iron in- induced blood. Oh, she see my strength. Said, yeah. 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 And so I was like, Oh, I hope she had, she didn't die already, you know? Yeah. And I called them and, uh, because of HIPAA laws, they can't tell you the reason why. So what mm. she did was she gave me several reasons that it could be, which I'm sure my reason was embedded in there somewhere. Right. And so she said, you know, the recipient may no longer need it, which means the chemo saved them or they're dead. Mm. And then she said it could be that they don't have um, a health, not health provider, they say care provider for them. And I'm thinking, you know, parents, someone could be there after the surgery or something, you know. And then the third one, which blew my mind was, maybe she has lack of insurance mm. in mm. america you mean to tell me this girl if she had a lack of insurance you would have just said honey go ahead and pick out your coffin right because it's sick it's essentially you're you're telling the person like oh that's it yeah There's you can't left. afford it yeah you can't afford it well sucks for you sorry yeah just, yeah. just one of the downfalls of capitalism right just die yeah. you know i'm interested uh, to hear what you think about the idea of universal health care. Do does that seem like a viable solution to a problem like that to you? Universal in the sense of in America? In the sense that in, in America, in the United States, everyone being guaranteed health care by the government. The only way it could be viable, if you look at some of the other countries that have it, like Canada and things mm-hmm. of that nature... If you want it, you have to be careful what you ask for. And I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for it, but you have to be aware. The reason why Canada and some of these other countries can have it is because their tax rate is out of this world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you'd be lucky to bring home half your paycheck instead yeah. of um, just being taxed at 21 or 28%. Right, right. right. Well, there's also the idea that you know, you've talked to us before, we talked about this. It maybe instead of, you know, everybody has the government, um, the government health care, government funded health care, it's, well, that's an option. And then there's a privatized industry, right? And that's, we talked about that before. Right. And essentially, I mean, I'm pretty sure we have something similar to that, like uh, Medicare, Medicaid, I don't know which one, but where there is the government funded health care that you can, you know, apply for, you can get it. But then there's also private industries that you can, you know, invest in yourself and i don't know much about what um those government um or lack of better word welfare um medical insurance covers and i'm sure they have a lot of limitations as well right right. so that in itself would not be universal health care because everybody would not um have the same thing and there still be health disparities gotcha Gotcha. Are there any solutions that you can think of for this problem? For example, why do you think 
the cost of these types of care has risen so much. And do you have any ideas on what we can do to reduce the cost and make it make treatment more? I mean, it's kind of weird to say it, but like treatment, a more realistic option, you know? Well, one of the things other than um, the doctors receiving their salaries, um, that's one of the highest things that's on the bill. Um, But at the same time, you know, you can you can say that's the issue. But looking from that doctor's perspective, he's gone to school for forever Right. And he may owe a quarter of a million dollars in student loans. How do you expect him to pay that back if you don't give him that high salary? Yeah. So then the government isn't getting their student loan money back if you don't pay him. Mm-hmm. So it's a cyclical effect. It's like there's the demand for that salary in order for for the doctors to survive. Now, some salaries are may seem to be astronomical. I don't know. I have not done any research on their salaries. Right. But the second... I'm not saying this is in order um, as far as the doctor's salary, but the next item that is usually the biggest ticket item on a medical bill, pharmaceuticals. Right. (laughs) And I heard, and this was 10 years ago, so I'm sure it's much higher now, but the pharmaceutical companies on average earn $1 billion per day. Right. Wow. That's $365 billion. So, and then they close in um, the loopholes of ensuring that they make that money. Right. And one of the things that they do, like, say, XYZ um, medicine in America costs $1,000 for that script. That same XYZ medicine in Mexico, you can go there and get it for, let's say, 100 bucks. Right. Or to Canada, a hundred bucks. Do you know that pharmaceutical companies have lobbyists to lobby for you know bills and laws to be made, and there's laws in place that make it illegal for an American citizen to go and get that medicine for cheaper in another country. Really? Yes. That's crazy. How do you, how do, how do you pass something like that? Because we're not aware, you're not paying right. attention, or it's done in the, on the sly, you know, um, right. without making the American public aware of it, or it's already stacked in a whole bunch of other bills and things like right. that, where it just slips through. Right. But right. I mean, that bill and it, what it says is, if you don't have this thousand dollars, then you need to die. I right. don't care if you can go across the border and get it. Then we'll put you in jail. And then you'll die because right. you don't have the medicine then. And that's it, just as ridiculous. That's more ridiculous. It's a, That's just right. feeding into the corporate greed. Hmm. This is something This is something we talked about just yesterday yeah. on, our, on our last <laughs> podcast. Um, a lot of times what happens is a bill will be touted as one thing and they'll hit a hot button issue, right? And they'll say it's this. And if you believe in this, vote for this thing. But right. what you don't realize is all the things that go with it. Yes. Right. All the legislation and everything and the extensive pages of documents yes. and all the Yeah, people read the headlines of something, then they don't right. go and read the other five pages, ten pages, twenty of the bill. Exactly. And you see it in the propositions as well. I'm not yep. sure you guys have a chance had a chance to vote year. yet. Okay, so it was your first time voting. Yeah. And when you look at the propositions, you'll see this proposition is for something really, really good. 
But within that proposition, in order for you to pass it, you have to agree to all this other stuff in that proposition that's totally unrelated to that yep. topic. Exactly. Yep. That's the way they sneak things through. Because if you want this bad enough, then you have to accept this evil. Well, and what people also don't realize is his propositions. It's not um, the government that, well, obviously they're putting it out, but it's usually special interest groups because the whole prop, uh, process to get a proposition on is there's, so there's a special interest group and then you have to get, it's, it's a petition essentially, you have to get um, a certain percentage of signatures from the people that voted in the last election right. and then you bring that to the government, then it has to get approved and then it's put on the bill. Half, more than half the time, it's a special interest group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of insight into that whole realm of things too, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a political science major and my yeah. mom is in politics. I've grown up around politics my entire life. Awesome. Yeah, so yeah. that's like my era of things that I like, or realm rather of things that like I know about and, you know, I'm considering getting a PhD in political science. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that way I like know, I, I don't know. I like politics. I like, it's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> Yeah, that is definitely not my forte. I just know that whenever politics come up, that subject or watching television, um, news or whatever, I always find myself disgusted and angry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's easy to become frustrated. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the other problems, too, is that just the country is so spread out and there's so there's so much polarization on certain issues and. There's just too much ground to cover, I feel, because we have so many states. And to have one person, like a, a single president, in charge of this whole country that's all spread out all over this whole land. I mean, Amir was saying it on the last podcast that, you know, I don't I don't know where he got it from, but Europe got it right. Because they realized like every 700 miles. Oh, it was a comedian. Someone, right. Comedian I got it from a comedian. It, that people think differently, right? Every 700 miles? It was a joke. It's like yeah. every 300 or 700, whatever, people think differently. Right. Maybe and that's why Europe is split right. into different countries versus we are thousands of miles of land space and we're all living in this place together with all these different ideologies, which I think that that's cool. But at the same time, mm-hmm. at what point does that hinder where we go as a country? I, I beg to differ. Uh, I know he was just joking, but every 700 miles... I would say that was less than 700 feet. Right. <laughs> no, I right. I mean, you think yeah. of... Sorry, go ahead. I don't have the same ideologies as some of my neighbors. Yeah. No, I was I was about to say that. I mean, you, I can go down the block and I guarantee you, if I knocked on every person's door and asked them, what are your ideologies about this? They'd be similar, but it'd be different going down the entire block. I mean... Yeah. It seems like something you're very passionate about is education, right? Yes. I mean, that's what... That was your initial interest. What... What was your interest in education partially a byproduct of your frustration with, you know, the lack of education and people's, you know, ignorance to things and the lack of awareness and knowledge for things? Actually, I was, um, I think I was about seven or eight years old and I knew that I loved learning. I didn't know, didn't define it that way because I didn't know, you know, that's what I was doing. I just knew that I loved to read. I would get books from the library mm-hmm. and always reading and things of that nature. And even today, you know, whenever there's a blip in the economy, I always get laid off. And I always say, well, that's the only thing that the economy does for me when it's a blip. 
is I bury myself into learning something new right? or I get a new degree, you know? So I, I just love learning. And so it had nothing to do with other people, but, um, I remember the most profound thing about around education. I was about seven or eight years old and I was talking to my grandmother who I always refer to as mom. This is my maternal grandmother. And I knew she had a doctorate degree and she had already quit working. She was retired and um, she was earning money from a lot of uh, apartment buildings and rentals that she owned. And I said, Mama, why did you get a Ph.D. when you don't even use it? And she said, intrinsic value, baby, intrinsic value. And I just looked at her and I said, well, what is intrinsic value? (laughs) And she said, go look it up. And that is so true. And, And I have so much of her in me today because I would have a fascination with a topic. Like now it's oceanography. I just have such an amazement about the fact that the ocean could be 36,000 feet deep. deep yeah. And there's things we haven't discovered in there. And, you know, all these facts, there's mountains. And I believe the tallest mountain is fully underwater. Right. Yeah. And to know this type of stuff, I'm like, I want to take a class. Yeah. I've been known, not since my doctorate degree, because my doctorate degree is so so new right now. I want to mm-hmm. relish in reading, doing unassigned reading. But I've been known to go go to a community college with when I had my MBA just to take a course because I'm fascinated with a, a particular topic and, yeah. and I can't satisfy it with just getting a book from the bookstore. Right. So I, I just say, I would say to answer that it, it's just has nothing to do with um, the lack of learning anyone else was receiving or anything like that, even though that is a hot button for me, mm-hmm. but my drive to learn is just been for my own edification and to answer my own questions. If you don't mind me asking, what is your educational background? Because, you know, you do love learning so much. And I know you have a PhD for starters, right? What else have you done? Well, I just like my career, my um, education bounced all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I graduated from high school, I went to all girls um, Catholic high school in Chicago. I'm from Chicago. Oh. And... Um, I wanted to, of course, I wanted to go to college Mm -hmm. and all my friends were going to college. And here I was an honor roll student. I'm expected to go to college, but I could not afford college. Okay. So I was able to get through my first two years and I would run out of money in between then and then go back. And I got tired of flip flopping and doing that. So I joined the military, not knowing nothing about the military. (sighs) No frame of reference. My father was not even a Vietnam vet because he had flat feet and they didn't allow people in the military that had flat feet at the time. So right. I had no frame of reference. Didn't even like war movies. So, and then I'm, I'm a girly girl. Right. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I took the test, ASVAB, and I scored so high that they told me I could choose whatever MOS, which is job, that I wanted. And I chose the job that had the highest sign-on bonus. Not thinking about the implications of it or anything like that. I just wanted the money for school. Right. And that MOS was military police. I never 
touched a gun, <laughs> never fired a gun, you know. Uh. So, and then I ended up becoming an expert. Um, I was, um, once I got out, I was um, recruited by the Secret Service, which I did not take. Um, because nothing against police, nothing against them, but that was just was not me. Um, there were things that I wish I could unsee, you know, um, I didn't have any murders or anything like that, but just, you know, in the military, there's lots of suicides, there's Mm -hmm. rapes and then being stationed in Germany. A lot of Americans think that they know how to drive in Germany and, um, cause multi-car pileups on Audubon. And a lot of times, you know, 100% of the person is not in the car. Mm. There's pieces in the car, you know, and pieces everywhere else. So I wasn't made for that. And, um, and SIDS and stuff like that. And so I knew once I got out that I did not want to be in law enforcement. I didn't know how to compartmentalize like that. I'm too caring and feeling. Yeah. Um, so then I immediately after getting out, um, I got my, my car came to port in New Jersey and I drove to Chicago and I was in school within a week. I was in summer school and I had two more years to go in school and I finished that in a year. And then I moved to California and I got into insurance claims And again, I told you I don't have thick skin. So I was in homeowners. And a lot of people would underinsure their their homes thinking nothing devastating would happen. And then if they have a total fire or, and that's how I met your mom. Oh. In insurance. And if, you know, something devastating happened and you gave them their policy limits and it's not enough to rebuild the house. And so they would take it out on you, being the claims adjuster. Right. And you would get call words yeah. that Shoot aren't the kind. Shoot the messenger kind of yes. deal. Mm-hmm. And I don't have thick skin for that. And I just yeah. thought, this is not the career for me. So I went back to school for my MBA while still working claims. And um, started a couple of small businesses. Um Insurance companies to order police reports and fire reports, and they would do it by hand and mail them in and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, what if I can automate that and I can order all their police reports and fire reports and stuff like that? So that Mm -hmm. was one of my small businesses. And then you make mistakes as you go. I wasn't charging enough. That was my weakness is asking for what. I needed in order for the business to thrive and grow. Right. And I've started not, um, government contracting businesses, uh, yeah, all types of things. I, I, I call myself a hustler. Yeah. So I, I'm gonna, I will survive. The only thing I haven't done was mowed lawns, uh, or clean houses. I refuse. So, uh, <laughs> other than cleaning my own, um, so I did that for a while, and then I ended up in economic development. Okay. And my first job in economic development was running the Veteran Business Outreach Center for the entire state of California, and that was under the umbrella of the Small Business Administration, which is federal. And that was fun for a while, and I was always in Southern California, so I got to see California and stuff like that, yeah. uh, being that I'm not from here. 
And um, I got tired of that because I was never sleeping in my own bed. I'm trying to cover all of California. So then I became the director of the Small Business Development Center Mm -hmm. out of Sierra College, which was another federal program under the SBDC, I mean, under the SBA. And I did the same thing as I did with the VBOC. I helped businesses, people that wanted to start a business. I helped them with business plans, um, marketing analysis, and anything, whatever their needs were. Um, With the SBDC, though, I had more funding available to me. So I had like 13 staff. Uh, Many of them were contractors because I couldn't be well-versed in every area of business. So I had consultants hire consultants that had the expertise in areas where I did not. Um, And then I had a six-county territory. So my counties um, started at Placer in Roseville and went all the way up to the Oregon border. And it was longitudinal. It wasn't all the way across to the the ocean seaboard or anything like that. And then there was the Great Recession. Mm. Right. And so I went back to doing like government contracting, whatever else I could, because everybody was suffering during that time. Right. And then ended up back in economic and workforce development. And so I have this joke. I I say I was meant to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. because I don't thrive in a job that says you have got to be here at eight o'clock. Right. You take your lunch at this time. And if you have to tinkle, you tinkle only during these 10 minutes and you get off at five o'clock. Right. right. I don't thrive in those environments. I'm not creative in those environments. I'm most creative. If I can come and go as I please, I will get the job done and I will do even more for you. Mm-hmm. But um, so and I always was lucky enough to have those type of jobs where I wasn't really micromanaged or harnessed. Got it. But I am a true entrepreneur, and at the same time, I love helping people. And all my jobs were always in servicing and helping and growing and developing people. Mm-hmm. And so once that job ended, I decided that I have PTSD for jobs. I don't want another <laughs> job, I, unless it's the job that I create for myself. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, again, like I said, th- during my cycle of being a bone marrow donor, The second time is when I had my epiphany and I said, you know what? This is what you need to do. You can save one life at a time by donating or you can save many lives by getting the word out there and helping others to save lives. Yeah. Right. By inspiring and educating, right? Yes. You know, what was it like for you to see the beach for the first time? The beach? (laughs) The beach, yeah. Well, well, when you came to California, rather. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, because yeah. we had a huge beach in Chicago. Okay. Um, how is it different? Lake Michigan. Yeah, how is it different, though? Well, it's hard to see the difference because Lake Michigan is it's one of so, the great lakes, and yeah. it's so huge. It's just like looking at the ocean. You don't see where it ends. Mm. Um, it's choppy. It's, you know, the same thing. People surf on those lakes. Yeah. Really. It literally looks like a beach. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, lakes. Yeah, yeah. It's yes. crazy. It's literally like being on an actual beach. Yeah, wow. and it's very, very deep. It's a couple of thousand feet. Um, I think the deepest lake in America, I looked it up. It's Crater Lake up in Oregon. And then Mm -hmm. Lake Lake Michigan, Lake Tahoe is number two. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's right in our neighborhood. Yeah. It's two hours away. (laughs) Which means if there was an earthquake that cracked that mountain open, 
Oh, it's it's all over. It can yeah, it can literally <laughs> that all that water can fill the uh, Sacramento Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Flooding. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, already because my mom works in the state lands department. She was just telling me the other day that right now they we have way too much water. You know, and that the levees are, have been breached and, you know, they're trying to let all these wa- this water out of the dams and the rivers are, like, way higher than they normally should be. Dude, right? I drive through the Delta sometimes and the, uh, the river is so high. Yes. Yeah. It's so freaky looking. If that's the case, why are they still charging us for water? They should right. pay us to use the water. Right. <laughs> You know, it's crazy, too, because we went from having a drought. We went from the water levels are super low and we don't, we're running out of water to now, oh, my God, we have too much water. Because we what got we it do? too fast. That was the problem was we right. got it too fast. Yeah. Right. We should have gotten, well, well, preferably what would have happened was we would have gotten water over time, things like that. But nope, just California was like, hey, nah, I'm just, I'm going all out. And right. then now we're having floods. And it's also um, because of our jet stream, we don't get water certain times of the year. Right. So it's difficult to get it steadily over a course of time. Yeah. So right. we have to get it all in during the winter time. So it makes it a little difficult. Um, but I prefer having too much water. I know it comes with bad things than too little. Right. This is true. This yeah. is true. It's, true. it's definitely better than being in a drought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I still don't want grass. I can't wait till I can cut down my tree mm-hmm. and put in like a desert oasis in my front lawn. Um, and I have fake grass in the backyard. I've had that for 15 years only because I'm not mowing it. <laughs> uh, I don't mow grass anyway. So I hire someone to do the front and I don't want to hire someone to do the back. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah just put in some turf. There you go. <laughs> That's that's always good. Always yep. a good decision. I mean, we used to have this big palm tree in the front. I don't know if you remember that. No. We used to have this. These. Uh, it was like a twin palm tree. They were like connected at the base. They kind of grew together, kind of like the In and Out palm trees. Except these palm trees are thick. That's big, seven thick right trees. here. Yeah, but <laughs> we had to, we had to get rid of those things because they were. First of all, it was a hazard, right? Because you can't mm-hmm. cut it. They're too tall. Right. Right. And then the second thing is uh, the water. The watering was a problem. So yes. we didn't want it to die because then that's that's even more dangerous. Then you're just waiting for the thing to fall over. Right? And they're water seeking too. So they're tap your plumbing. Yep. Oh, yep. wow. I did yeah. not know that. Oh, yeah. That's why I want to cut my tree down. I can see the roots going towards the driveway so that'll jack up your driveway. And then my sewage system is on that same side as the tree. Mm-hmm. You get the, the roots get into there. It will grow and crack open all those pipes. Yep. Oh. That's thousands of dollars. So that tree is going timber. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we actually got someone to haul ours away. Yeah. But um, going back to your, uh, your not-for-profit, you mentioned HIPAA laws a lot uh, with the procedures and stuff like that. Or rather, just the, back to the general subject, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do HIPAA laws stipulate? You know, what do they say? Well, HIPAA laws is like a big old book. So, okay. I, but just to try to wrap it up in layman's terms, HIPAA laws is there to protect patients. So it protects your rights. It protects your information, which more is just more important. Right. So no one can just say, you know what? 
I want to know what Andrea's procedure was all about yesterday. Mm-hmm. And no one can just go in there and look at your medical records. Your employer can't just look at your medical records. Right. Right. So it protects you. And that's what it's there for. So even with um, the bone marrow registry, they can only, they couldn't tell me the person's name, obviously. They're protected. And so they can tell me it was a female, her age, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They couldn't even tell me where in the country she was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if it was being flown out or what, but I did know my first one was because they probably didn't know they were breaking HIPAA. But I was under, and I always come to in my surgeries. Oh. And, yeah. That sounds scary. (laughs) Well, I I don't feel it. Right. But I came to, and I heard the doctor saying, do we have enough time? No, do we get enough? And he says, no. And then he says, well, do we have enough time? And then they were like, I don't know. And I go back under, and to me, it was only two seconds later. And then they said, call the airline. Stop the flight. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, that's why my flights are always late. And <laughs> so they stopped the flight because that's a live organ. Wait, so the the doctors were calling to stop the flight? Well, the doctor was uh, ordering somebody in the um, OR to right. call the airline to stop the flight. Right. Because they had a live organ. Right. And the live organ has precedence. Right. Because it will die and the person waiting for it would die. Right. And, um, and oh, and they sent me a picture of the courier, too, that had my um, bone marrow and going on oh, to wow. the flight. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But um, I do know that that person wasn't local because of what I heard during my surgery yeah. and that, the, that they were being, the bone marrow was being flown. Mm-hmm. So since I brought that up, bone marrow is only viable for 48 hours. Once mm. it's outside of the body. Yes. Right. Yeah. So they, it's something that... They usually do the next day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is there often these kind of tense situations where you're trying to get bone marrow from one person and you're trying to get it to the next, to his destination, to the recipient as quickly as possible? Is this kind of like a thing that happens regularly? I don't know, but I have spoken to some recipients that knew that their bone marrow left the country. So I'm sure that that had to be a little stressful yeah why would why would their bone marrow leave the country well he was african-american and his went to um belgium okay and um he thought well perhaps that meant it went to someone that was belgium bell was it what was what he belgian 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 i think it's belgian i think so yeah maybe <laughs> yeah and i was like america has a military base there nut it was probably a black person stationed there, you know, <laughs> right. or their child that's there. Yeah. Right, right. But yeah, so there's black people all over the world. Yeah, no, definitely. What What is the diversity like? Because I mean, I, you know, I grew up uh, Latino, right? And even my own ethnicity, I don't know that much about the diversity, right? But, you know, uh, with, with what you've described so far, I can imagine that the African-American yeah. ethnic diversity must be even more vast. You know, what does the variation look like, you know? Well, we are on every continent except for Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we match with each other on that continent. Because when you just look at Africa. Right. How right. many countries are in Africa? And those are different. And then within each of the countries, there's different tribes. Right. They have their own DNA, you know, sequences and stuff. 
So there can't even match from tribe to tribe because right. of the variations. So if you just look at that, you just think, oh my God, that's so vast. And then when you look at an African-American, mm-hmm. once we got here, um, we didn't know, you know, we don't know where we come from in Africa. Right. It's usually one of five countries because that's where the African slave trade was coming from. Right. But you don't know which tribe. So that's, let's say that's like a thousand tribes of possibility. Mm-hmm. And not knowing where I come from, but yet that slave marries another slave that was from one out of one of those thousand. Right. That's a diversity there. And then the children that they have, and they're getting with people that from tribes of the one in one thousand, those one in one thousand. So it's like, it's so diverse. And that's just that small segment of people. Mm-hmm. Right. You're thinking of all of Africa. What about South America? It's just even more extensive and it just goes on and yes. deeper and deeper. Yes. Right? And then we intermingle with each other. Right. And not just each other, we intermingle with other ethnicities right yeah so that makes it even more diverse because i'm not a hundred percent black whatever black mean because i don't know first of all what all countries i come from in africa because every time you go each generation it doubles right you have two parents four grandparents eight greats and it just doubles right so i can go back to the 1700s um i do know that on my paternal side my father's father's mother 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 comes from guinea-bissau which is a country just north of senegal but i do know also that there is some sierra leone in there um and then on my grandfather's father's side is irish Hmm. and then there's also choctaw indian Mm -hmm. On my mother's side, I know less about, but I do know that my great-grandmother was Blackfoot. And I have no clue where um, the African-American part came in. Mm -hmm. And her grandfather was Irish. Mm. So that's a hodgepodge of people. Yes. And to think (laughs) that someone else had that same hodgepodge in order for me to match with them. Right. Oh, so that's how it has to to work then. It's a hodgepodge. You have to have, because genetically, you have to be able to match with them, right? Yes. So their history so would be, be similar. That's crazy. The HLA is a genetic marker yeah, that right. you're matching with. And then we even think of your own siblings. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I know you don't have a sibling. but I have an only child. I have a brother. But when yeah. you think of your siblings, first of all, 30% of matches come from families. Right. And only 25% match can come from um, siblings. And you would think that should be much higher. Right. But if you think about it, okay, so you get half from your mother, half from your father. And mm-hmm. that's with your siblings. They get half. You don't get the same half. Right. That is true. You get a different half. Yeah. It's a different half, yeah. So when I take my genetic test to see what my breakdown is, it may show that I have 7% Irish, 20% of this, and 50% mm-hmm. of that, whereas my sister... Hers may not even show any any of the Indian. She might not have gotten that part of the genetic material right. of my parents. Right, right. That's interesting. Yeah. So you yeah. don't get the same 50%. I want you to talk a little bit more about the it's HLA marker, it's called. Yes. Um, but before that, I, I want to ask you if you've heard about the theory 
um, that most African Americans haven't come from Africa through the slave trade. Have you heard about that theory? Well, a lot of us did not. I yeah. mean, um, my father, grandfather's, I didn't bring that material with me, but I'm thinking a great, great grandfather uh, was brought over through another, um, um, he didn't come from the slave trade. He, he migrated over from Ethiopia or something. Mm-hmm. And um, there's people that, there, was, there were blacks on America, the continent of the U.S. I mean, that's something in history they don't want to talk about. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just the Indians. There were blacks here as well. Um, and, and Hispanics, the Mayans and all of that. Right. So, no, we didn't all come from slavery. Yeah. Um, the main argument that I, that I hear, and it is strange that this isn't something that they teach you in school. They don't say, yeah, no, there were black people here. They don't mention it, right? No. They, they always, they, and I'm not saying it's bad that they focus on the Native Americans, but I think it is bad when you're excluding certain people, yeah. you know, from I took the an entire books. U.S. history class, and I love the class. Super interesting, but... Yeah. Huh. Well, and then here's the other thing. The main thing going for that theory is that it's not economically viable to get all your slaves from another country, right? If we're thinking like 300, 400 years ago, right? It doesn't seem realistic economically viable to do that when you know over half of them are going to die on the way over right for starters right so it would make more sense to focus on the people that are already here right but then to say that you know to to act like there weren't people here or to just totally exclude them from the history books right that's super bizarre because then you have to answer the question well how did those people get here right because then you have to start saying like Oh, you know, they could have come across the sea on their own. Like, how did you, how do you know they didn't have their own boats? How do you know they didn't have their own great civilization? Right? So there's a lot of things you're touching on there. So one of the things, um, as far as the African Americans and Indians and the, the indigenous people that were here, the Aborigines, they were not, um, they considered them wild. Mm-hmm. They weren't tame and, um, they were more, in their view, fatalistic. They would commit suicide before they allowed themselves to become slaves. Mm. So they had to find someone that they could, that would have hopes of ever going back home. So they wanted to survive. And that was a survival mechanism. So it was economically very beneficial to America to have free labor. Free labor is never not an economical beneficial thing for America. Um, so when they brought uh, the slaves over, whether la- they lost half of them or not, that was not bought product. It was free product. So how was that hurting their bottom line? That's right. true. And when you have them stacked on top of each other, so it's not like, oh, this person requires this much space in order to live and be viable and be healthy. They didn't give a dang about that. Right. So they were living on top of each other, using a restroom on top of each other. They weren't unchaining us to go to the restroom and to eat. Right. They didn't care if you died. No, you were, they would have been treated like animals. Exactly. Yeah. So that was free labor. We built America for free. Right, right. That is true. It's and, really, and we yeah. did that. We exploited every ethnicity in America. Right. You know, uh, the Japanese and the railroads and the Chinese and all that stuff. And, and that was how America was built. 
exploiting others. It's true. It's very yeah. true. Yeah. But I think the, the coolest thing now is to just see how far we've come. And the even cooler thing still is to just think about how much further we have to go, you know. Just look at how much better things have gotten in the last hundred years, you know. Civil rights movement and all that. It wasn't that long ago. That was yesterday. My yeah. parents weren't allowed to vote. Yeah. I mean, wow. even my dad. My dad's not even black. And when he was living in New York, you know, they were calling him the N-word and this and that, you know. It was just normal. It was just people would just do it, you know. And nowadays, you know, that's something I haven't had to experience. You know, I've been fortunate, you know, that my parents have been able to bring me up in a more fortunate situation in an area where, you know, I don't go outside. I don't have people calling me names and things. You know, I don't have to deal with these kinds of things, right? Yeah, when you say, so my mom's an immigrant from India. And I'm biracial. My dad's white. And my mom's Indian. I don't know how to deal with the things from both sides. It's just you don't see it as much because you see how far we've come. Yeah. Right? Well, you guys are lucky. I've been called that word. And I've been called it here in Elk Grove. That's horrible. Wow. Yeah. Really? I hate to say it doesn't surprise me that it's in Elk Grove. Because yeah. I, I, um, I worked on a campaign uh, actually this last election. And just some of the houses that I went to, I was like, well, we all know what you believe. <laughs> Yeah. Just some that because oh it was God. it was the canvassing and yeah. just I was like oh okay I I think I know what this person believes let's not come back here right and there was times actually where we were out because there was um she was African American and Indian and there was houses like that she just wouldn't go to because she would see something on the outside of the house that was kind of a red flag mm-hmm. and she was like how about I don't go to this house because it would have been dangerous like kind of a red flag. I think <laughs> I'm not saying well <laughs> no I'm not saying that like I'm just like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but. yeah well part of that is part of the reason why there's distrust in the medical com- uh, yeah. blacks have a distrust of the medical community mm-hmm. because a lot of people refer to the Tuskegee Institute uh, as the only time that we were used as guinea pigs and if you do your research it's not a lot that is not well you know spoken and heard of mm-hmm. but we were used um to test anesthesia and how much we can endure without anesthesia. Uh, Mm. Uh, Our women were, their fallopian tubes and hysterectomies were done on them without any anesthesia just to see if they could survive it and survive the pain. Uh, Doing slavery just to test how much they can work a slave in the heat without water and food. They had this big old pot made out of clay and they would bury it and they would light a fire under it and put the, um, the pot in there and they would cook a black human being oh my God, and they would test and, and measure how long they could work or stay alive under that intense heat. So that way they can determine how long they can keep a black slave out there which they call their property because they didn't want to lose their free labor right how long they can keep them out in the field and get um work out of them before they would die so do you think how long how long ago was this happening like just during the time of slavery or or did these kinds of things extend outside of that time period as well it did. Yeah. I do have a book at home that I have not read yet, but um, that claimed that it did go into even the 2000s. Oh, Different medical atrocities and guinea pig studies and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it yet. 
I have a long list of readings that I want to do. I'm just so excited after finishing my doctorate degree that I could possibly read a book that I choose. (laughs) And I just got caught up now because of, because of the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I think in order for any healing to occur in America, um, there needs to be some type of acknowledgement of the things Mm -hmm. that had occurred and I think that in itself would heal a lot of people that have been wronged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to acknowledge that wrong has been done. Yes, because right. a lot won't even acknowledge it. And they they try to minimize it by saying, but it wasn't me. That was a great grandfather or something like right, that. Right. Well, we're not saying it was you acknowledge that this occurred right right and not just slavery but even post-slavery because the system was set up for us not to thrive not to be a part of society where we couldn't get jobs we couldn't get the education and even today it's done in in sly ways where the educational system is the money is provided based on the housing market so if your house oh. in a particular neighborhood, if it's a poor neighborhood, the real estate tax is lower because your house isn't worth as much. Right. So therefore, the schools in that area is barely going to receive any funding. Right. So your kids may not even have books. You see boarded up um, windows at right. schools in rural areas and I mean, um, and plight plighted areas and stuff like that so do you think they're getting an awesome education than they would be getting from an area that gets a lot of real estate tax that's a way of denying education from a a certain segment of people right and if you're in a segregated area you're really setting yourself up for failure Right. right right so what do you think is a way that we can fix that issue, you know, to for like kids who are born into families in these areas, you know, how can how can they have a better opportunity and a better future? First of all, I think um, living in a segregated area is the worst thing you can do. Right. Um, you don't see that very much in California, but like in Chicago, there's the black suburbs, black ghettos, white and white is even broke, broken up. There's Italian area, there's an Irish area and all of that. Right. But when you're segregated like that, you're, you're making it easy for you to be a target. Right. So if your area, because you're black, then you're going to get less resources. And because you're segregated together, it's easy for them to clump you together. And now your schools don't get those resources. And now all of the black kids aren't getting the right, edu- you know, getting a good education. Right. So it's easier for it to be targeted. And and I, I think segregation, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't partake in that. And there's so many things that you can discuss. And like I said, I think a healing would happen also in all areas of, of America and, on, and things that are wrong if, is if they just acknowledge what they have done. Right. right? Just acknowledge it. Do, and, well, and, I was going to, I wanted to ask you, do reparations seem like a, like a viable step in the right direction? Like a viable solution to a problem? It could be, but like I said, I think first it starts with acknowledgement. And, and the reason why they're fighting reparations so hard is because then they have to acknowledge it. 
they have to acknowledge all the wrongdoing that was done. Yeah. Right, that's the hardest. You know, it's funny. Something we don't learn about very often. Um, you know, we'd love to think that California is a super accepting, loving place. Man, not even a hundred years ago, you want to know where Hitler got the idea of exterminating the Jews? California, eugenics. Eugenics started in California at universities in California, right. and they were doing things like things that you were talking about to minorities and people of color, mm-hmm. and that was a horrible thing. And that probably contributed to that distrust within the medical community and further built that. And we don't like to acknowledge that. We don't like to talk about how mm-hmm. you know eugenics was this serious big thing. You could get a degree in eugenics. That was a thing. That was a thing. You can get right. a PhD in eugenics. Obviously, you can't do that anymore because you know I'm pretty sure it's illegal. Right. But that's one of those things, and we just don't like to acknowledge that bloody past. I guess you could, is a way of putting it, right? Yeah. Yes, and I don't think um, I think a lot of people misconstrue um, racism with um, just hurt, right? Um, you know, and they and they talk about reverse racism. First of all, reverse racism does not exist. Racism is based on power. What power do we have to stop you from getting a job? Right. What power do we have from stop you from getting a home in a decent area? Right. What power do we have? We don't have that power. Right. You know, so in that sense, racism does not exist. Right. Anger exists. Sure. Right. Well, I mean, you mentioned it before. People feel more comfortable being around other people who look like them, interfacing with other people who look like them. Do you feel like even breaking that down, teaching people to be more comfortable around people who don't necessarily look like them or who are different from them, people who have a different kind of cultural history, even those kinds of things could be a good step in the right direction? I don't think it's a matter of comfort Mm -hmm. because we have to assimilate in a certain way in order to survive. So we have to be comfortable in the workplace in order to, we're not going to work I mean, when you go to work, you're going to see different hues, different, you know, it's going to be a diverse workplace. So you have to develop a certain uh, comfort level. So I don't think it's comfort that um, we're aiming at mm. um, as far as a distrust. Because I could be comfortable being around you, but I wouldn't trust you with my DNA. Mm. Right. right. I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't trust you. I don't. I, you know, so I don't think that's the issue. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier on that there were a lot of concerns uh, from people who are, you know, considering uh, donating bone marrow. And you mentioned a lot of things. Uh, do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about that, about people's concerns and what you do to ease those concerns? Well, some people, um, they're concerned that you're going to use the DNA or the genetic material that is drawn from you. It's just a cheek swab. But whatever genetic material they get from that cheek swab, they are fearful that it will be used or shared um, to do other research Mm. um, that's not, you know, advantageous to them or shared with law enforcement Mm. um, for, you know, for whatever purposes. Um, and, and just abused. Right. And so what they're not aware of, this is genetic material. So they cannot, per HIPAA laws, 
share that material right. or share any results um, deriving from that material. Mm -hmm. So then the HIPAA laws come into play again to protect the people. Yes. Right, right, right. And people are just uneducated about that and they don't really grasp that. No, like what you give us, that's that nobody else gets that. Right. And you have to build that trust. Right. Yeah. Um, does a lot of that have to do with the the fact that more um, African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans live in poverty stricken areas? And like you were talking about before, you know, receive, they don't receive as good of an education. They don't have as prevalent opportunities. Well, if you look at the bone marrow registry and mm -hmm. there's a higher likelihood of people that join um, have some secondary education. Mm. And, um, and that's probably the reason why, one of the reasons why they recruit at colleges and universities and the other reason is because you can be on the registry from 18 to 61. So the economies of scale show that obviously it costs them less money to recruit an 18 year old that could stay on there with the longevity to 61 as opposed to trying to recruit people that are 50. Right, right. It just right. makes common sense. And then also um, the most viable um, health wise are the younger people. They tend right. not to have had cancer already and any other medical conditions that would disqualify them, like high blood pressure and diabetes out of control and things of that nature. So it's mm -hmm. easier to go after that demographic. Um, I forgot your question. I'm sorry. It's okay. I forgot <laughs> it too. <laughs> but um, that makes sense then. Then why would you would want to target like college campuses, for example? Mm -hmm. You know, I read on your website that uh, your group goes and talks at um, a lot of campuses. Have you talked at any campuses? Yes. Yes. I did the um, symposium at Sac City College mm -hmm. and I had it scheduled. I was doing a lot of them um, and I was doing speeches at women's conferences in San Diego. Mm -hmm. I did the symposium. I mean, that symposium um, a presentation for the University of Illinois Health Conference and I'm scheduled to speak at that this may not be the right title, the African-American Nurses Association in August. Mm -hmm. And so I get to do these talks and stuff, but sometimes I have to temper myself because yeah. I don't have the funds yet and I'm spending my money Yeah, mm -hmm. and I'm flying places and doing stuff. So um, I haven't checked lately, but... As of two months ago, I've spent like $10,000 of my own money. Oh, wow. So I'm telling myself to wait until I actually get funding. Yeah, right, definitely. Yeah. Um, how does one go about obtaining funding? Several ways. Um, you can buy my t-shirt. I have one on. <laughs> I know, I saw that. Yes. Um, and it says... For the black ones, there's one for females and males. And the black females... Um, it's this t-shirt, but both, um, female and male say only, did you know only 23% of blacks in need of a bone marrow transplant find a match? And then it tells you how to get registered, which is text the word woke to 61474 and you can get registered. And then there's t-shirts also for Hispanics. And of course it has their success yeah. rates. 
And this is the females, which, yes, I wear that, too. <laughs> like, I don't care. It's cute. But did you know only 46% of Hispanics in need of a bone marrow transplant find a match? Mm-hmm. And the reason why I have factoids on all of the T-shirts is because the nonprofit, the law that affects nonprofits as far as taxation is concerned, you only allow to do what is in your mission when you submitted your application to the IRS. Right. So my mission is to conduct non-clinical research and create awareness in the Black, Hispanic, and Native communities about the bone marrow registry. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to do anything outside of that. Okay. So if you were to sell, just say, mugs and T-shirts, how was that helping the mission? So I would have to pay taxes. Angels in disguise would have to pay taxes on these T-shirts. Right. So I'm known for squeezing a dollar out of a quarter. So <laughs> so I went to two nonprofit um, attorneys and I said, okay, so my mission is to create awareness. What if I create awareness on my T-shirts and right. on my mugs right. and everything that I sell? Would I have to pay taxes? And they were like, oh, I never thought of that. But no, you would not. So That's I put smart. factoids on everything that I sell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to go about it. Yeah. 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 About it. Very good way to go about it. Because why, you know, Uncle Sam gets enough money already. I don't get any. So. <laughs> I mean, me and Amir were just talking before the podcast about how the government, they just want your money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that is really cool, though. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't finish your question. So that's one way of fundraising for Angels in Disguise. Right. Another way is to give financially, give dollars. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you can go to our website, angels-in, which is in-disguise.org. Click the donate button and you can donate funds. And it is 100% tax deductible because we are a 501c3. The other way is to volunteer. When we do have symposiums and things like that, I need people to help me to pass out the folders and do different things and stuff like that, especially if it's a large crowd, to help me to manage the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are three of the ways that you can. And then nice. you can sponsor Ooh. a symposium. Really? So like churches and stuff like that. Okay. If they have a large ethnic group that is african-american or hispanic or native american all of them together they can you know promote a symposium and let me come in and do a symposium at their location have you presented any symposiums at churches not at any churches yet not yet not Not yet yet. i'm waiting for fun day yeah yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) i have hit my ceiling of how much i'm spending yeah i'm still grinding and working as far as developing more marketing collateral Oh, and grants is another way to raise money. So I've been applying for grants. Haven't gotten any yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can also do work. For instance, um, there's an opportunity, Be the Match Bone Marrow Registry. We're talking and discussions about them um, contracting out my nonprofit to do my symposium Mm -hmm. at HBCUs and HSIs, which is federally designated Hispanic Hispanic what's the S basically Hispanic designated um, colleges and universities okay. as well right. okay 
that is super cool. And so they can find the t-shirts on your website too. Yes, all they that. can. Angels in disguise. The t-shirts, the mugs, all the good fun stuff. That's awesome. That is very awesome. Um, okay, so I had this question a while ago. HLA markers. Yes. It's a genetic marker. What? This is a very abstract idea, right? Because uh, you know, what is a genetic marker for starters, right? You know, what is a HLA marker? What does that look like? Uh, that is very scientific. I don't know what it looked like. I'm sure it is one of the genetic strings on that DNA, mm-hmm. um, which we don't can't interpret all of the DNA yet. So I certainly can't. But um, it is something that's hereditary. Everybody has HLA markers. It is a protein within your genetic um, material. Okay. Okay. So it's just another one of those things that's in there that helps distinguish individuals. Yes. Okay. Yes, okay. and it is hereditary, so that's why you tend to match with your own ethnicity. Mm-hmm. They have had some anomalies where um, people seem to match outside of their ethnicity to discover that, oh my God, I did have that ethnicity way back in my family. Yeah. So however long ago. And you just don't know because if you only receive 50% from each parent and you didn't receive that same 50%, you know, as, as your siblings, but it might not show up. Like for instance, I have Choctaw and Blackfoot. I don't look like an Indian. Right. But that doesn't mean if I had a child, they might come out looking like an Indian because they may take all of that genetic material. I do have this Indian. Right. Right, so it's kind of a, it's like, it's up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's kind of like, sure. throw it up in the air. That's why I think racism is crazy. Yeah, because it's just not that simple. It, it, right? It, well, and then we all come from the same freaking place. Right, right, right. I mean, if you look at the migration of humans, we all came from Africa. Yep. And then if you look at the migratory uh, the path that we had taken... We started off going northward up into um, the Middle East and, yeah. and you know, and then um, f- I read a long time ago when I was in high school that the body can mutate. It takes 20,000 years for it to mutate to the, their new conditions. Mm. So if humans stayed in the Middle East for 20,000 years, then they look less Africanized. They are adapting to whatever those conditions are. Right. And then um, Chinese, supposed to be a very close cousin to African. And so it's, it's based on the migration. And then the world was more, uh, I forgot the term, Patagonia? Pa- Pangea. Pangea. It was Pangea. When all the, yes. the land was together and stuff. So we were all migrating. And that's why there were blacks on America, because you could walk to America. Exactly. It wasn't, uh, you didn't need a ship. And well, there was also like the um, land masses and stuff, like the ice bridge and things like that. Where people were crossing from Europe and stuff. I remember learning about that in anthropology. Right. So even to more recent times, you know. Right. Yeah. But we're all cousins. Right. 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 So I just think it's so stupid. And then, and then you, it makes us sound very ignorant as a people because it's all based on skin color. Really? Well, right. I mean, one thing I remember learning in my anthropology class, the reality is, you know, race is we made it up. We decided... Obviously, people look different. We're from different places. We have different ethnicities, cultures, things like that. Things like but that. cultures, yeah. But race is human. That's the race. Right. 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 Being black, white, purple, green, or orange is not a race. That's ethnicity. Right. That's color. 
Right. So we're all human, and we were all cousins. And I just think it's so stupid. Right. No, you're, I 100% agree. It's just the way of separating exactly. us. Exactly. I mean, look, here's the thing. We were all monkeys or whatever at one point, <laughs> right? We all come from the same place. Well, like, see, that's where I defer. Because yeah. I don't come from a monkey. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. No, God did not create me as a monkey. God <laughs> was very intentional when he made man. Right. I'm part of that man lineage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so you had mentioned earlier about all the tribes in Africa and, and how that contributes to the diversity of the African-American community. Do these international groups... Uh, dealing with the bone marrow registry. I forget the name of the, the one international group, but um, do they also deal with tribes in, in African countries and in other parts of the world? That is a very good question. <laughs> so when I was at Be The Match, not this year, but last year, I'm on their strategic planning committee okay. for, um, aimed at um, trying to get more blacks on the registry. So when I was there last year, uh, the CEO gave a presentation, and it was quite interesting. Um, he put the slide up very quickly and then went to the next slide. And I said, oh, bringing that slide back, because it was a map of the world. Mm-hmm. And there was di- directional arrows from America, and some of the arrows were double-sided, which means it was a two-way relationship. Right. So it was a two-way relationship when it was with Europe, which means... A white person can match with a white person in Europe and they'll send the bone marrow there and the bone marrow and the, the registries in Europe can match with people in America. Mm-hmm. So not just necessarily white people. I use that as an example because there's blacks in Europe and, and other ethnicities as well. Right. But it was a two way relationship and it was two way relationships going in a lot of um, countries that were predominantly white. But then the arrow going to Africa was single direction, mm. meaning that blacks can match with the blacks there, but we could not receive bone marrow from matches from coming out of Africa. Okay. So I was like, why is that so? And we were giving some, I call it uh, a half-baked reason as because there is not up to medical standards and all this other stuff. You know, they're, I guess their hospital or whatever. I mean, just a lot, they, they left a lot of room for us to try to figure it out ourselves. But if that's the case, when you go on grants.gov and look at the grants that's available for medical, it's predominantly for other countries and stuff. Mm-hmm. So why can't we just give, the bone marrow registries in Africa being Nigeria and Cape Town. There's two um, registries there. Mm-hmm. Why can't we give them a grant and the tools to make them up to American medical standards? Right. right. So that they can donate the opposite way. And that's another reason why the discussion we had them sound like we were getting off topic about racism and things of that nature and segregation and how it's easy to... Mm-hmm. Um, target a specific ethnicity for disparity that's a health disparity right there if we need 22 million people black people on the registry in order for us to even get a 77 percent match rate when there's only 43 million in america right and if you take out 18 to 61 if you take out all the people that are already had cancer 
Mm-hmm. Take out all the black people that have high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity, and all the other medical conditions that would disallow them to be on the registry. There would not be 22 million people. Right. Not even close. Not even close. Right. So how on earth could we ever get to 77%? How? Not even 100%, but just to match right. the whites. You can't. Right. Now, without opening up those doors to other countries, like South America, right. Africa, where all these other blacks are. And that's a health disparity in, in itself right. by those policies. So why don't we um, make it a two-way relationship? Why can't we do that? Well, they said because of they're not up to par medically. Yeah. Okay. So how do we get them up to par? They need funds to get up to par. Right. Yeah. So then it goes, get, get them grants. And, of course, I'm not the decision maker for that. Right, right. But that's just another way of having, you know, why we have distrust the medical community. Do they really care about us? Right, Are they right. really trying to save us? Right. Because they come up with loopholes to not do so. And that is right. a loophole. Right. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because... um I mean, ideally, you would want that to be a two-way relationship, right? But why are people trying so hard to, you know, hinder progress? It seems like anyways, right? Um, What other possible solutions do you think we could look at in the future to, you know... Blacks need to band together as a community. Minorities need to band together as a community. Mm -hmm. And... Give grants, develop grants, um, fund organizations like Angels in Disguise, fund other agencies and stuff like that that are bone marrow registries, like in the bone marrow registry in Nigeria and Cape Town, so that they can get up to par. We can't sit here and wait for the majority to make those decisions for us. Otherwise, we will continue to die. Right, right. Um, there's one other thing I also wanted to ask you about. It was a quote I saw on your website. Um, I forget I forget who it was from, but I found it really interesting. And I was just wondering if you could maybe go a little bit more in depth with, you know, what it means and how you decided on it. But it's kindness in words creates confidence. Kindness in thinking creates profoundness. And kindness in giving creates love. Especially that last one, you know, that one really touched me. But how did you... Here... How did you decide on that one? Who said it? What's the story? Well, um, my web developer had all these great ideas and stuff, and he would pitch them to me, and I'll say yay or nay and stuff like that. So I did not come up with this one, but it was one for me to choose. And it, 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 it is exactly what we need in order for people to help each other, right. you know, to have that compassion, you know, granted, you don't get paid to donate your bone marrow. That's, right. It's illegal to pay someone for an organ and bone marrow is an organ. And so it takes kindness out of your heart. It takes love. It takes yeah. empathy for your fellow man to just want your fellow man to live because they're strangers to you. I didn't know my recipients and I still don't know. The one that did survive. Right. But if she was to relapse today and I was called again to donate, I would do so. Mm-hmm. 
So I think kindness is really surmises exactly what is needed to solve this problem. I think I think that sums it up pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Anything else you want to touch on? Yeah, 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 yeah. Here you go. Great. <laughs> yeah, we're about two hours. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> we're about two hours and 15 minutes in. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's really, really eye-opening, you know, learning about this issue. You know, right. like like I said before, didn't even know I didn't it was even know an this issue. Was like, yeah. Right? That's what I was going to say. I didn't even know. Oh, I thought it broke. No, that's fine. <laughs> it sounded like it broke for a second. It yeah. did. Yeah, but, you know, again, just didn't even know it was an issue. I mean, like, what was your, what was your reaction? Like, when I told you about it, I mean, I, I think you were kind of like, what? Right? This was exactly my reaction. I was <laughs> like, uh. Yeah. That's a, this is an issue? Right. I, just, I wasn't aware. So, right. it's cool to, like, actually, you know, now it's something that we know. And that was what you were talking about earlier was that knowledge. And now it's like, oh, okay. Right. I have that knowledge. I think the coolest thing too is how you can see modern technology working a little bit um, to kind of help remedy the issue like with the use of stem cells, right? Right. You know, stem cells, these are cells, these are things that we've only learned about recently, right? In modern medical technology um, or can't be pretending, I know, but right. at least it, seems, it seems like not that long ago, right? Um. And to, but just to think that you know now we're starting to implement these kinds of you right. know, procedures to help help people. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's awesome, really. No, it is super cool, and it's yeah, it's interesting to learn about like you know how because we live in America. It's one of those things where it's like okay, duh, minorities kind of get screwed over. Right. But to something so specific, it's it's it's, it's interesting, right? To learn about. Well, what are these issues? How do we address them? What do we do to solve them? Right, right? and those are the questions that you sh- that you have to ponder on. It's like you know, we have these issues in society. In this case, we're talking about bone marrow transplants, things like that. Mm. What do we do? How do we address this issue? And you know, as Indira has been going on, like you know, encouraging them, to, um, African Americans, just minorities in general, like register, do these things, all this, no. Yeah. yeah, I would like to add, you know, for those that would like to join, you can join from between the ages of 18 and 61. And it is free for you to join if you're between the ages of 18 and 44. If you're joining Be The Match, by the way, you can learn more about Be The Match at bethematch.org. Um, so if you're over the age of 44, it costs $100 in order for you to join. And the reason why it costs them about a hundred dollars to process the genetic material. Yeah. And because they're so desperate for people and youth obviously is the number one group that they're yeah. looking for, it's free of charge. However, if you're over the age of 44 and it doesn't mean they don't want you or don't need you because I did donate my second donation. Um, I was at that cusp. So I won't say how old I was, but anyway, <laughs> It does cost $100, and it is tax deductible. And please don't let that deter you from joining. And again, just text the word WOKE to 61474, and a form will come up, ask you information and your address and things of that nature, and and some medical stuff like, do you have diabetes and things of that nature. They will send you a swab kit in the mail, and you simply follow the directions, swab your cheek, 
put the kit back into the um, self-enclosed envelope and mail it back, and then you're on the registry. All right. Any oh. other final thoughts? Yes, I would like to say, um, please donate to yeah. Angels in Disguise. And, and your donation will be used in one or two ways uh, to do bone marrow educational symposiums at um, church events, community events, uh, historically black um, colleges and universities, HBCUs, and Hispanic-designated um, um, institutions and colleges as well, and at Native American events. The other thing that I would like to do is a documentary, and I need funding for that. I would like to follow four recipients in need of a bone marrow transplant. And the purpose of that is to humanize it so people can actually see what the recipient or patient, because they're not a recipient until they find a match, but what the patient is going through and what is it doing um, to their lives, you know, and their health. And um, even, I'm sure, following four people, I'm hoping that one of them will find a match and survive, and I'm sure some of them will die. But the purpose is to just humanize it. And then I want to follow a donor after they've been told, hey, you're a match. So people can see what the donor goes through and that it's not a difficult process. Mm -hmm. And create a documentary and show it at um, various film festivals like the Pan-African Film Festival and other film festivals to educate the masses. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's <laughs> super cool. How do you how do you think you would go about that? Like, say you, if you had funding, where would you start with that? Well, I would um, ask the Be the Match Bone Marrow Registry to, because of HIPAA laws, I'll go through them right. and ask them to identify people that are willing for me to reach out to them mm-hmm. to be potential um, candidates for this documentary. And, of course, they would ask for the permission because they are aware of them. Mm-hmm. And then, based on that permission, give me their information so that I could... Um, do the documentary and I would hire of course a cameraman and over whatever else is right. needed and things of that nature. And I'm anticipating that it would be a very expensive process because you can't find four recipients that live in the same town, you know, right, patients right. then yeah. So it's going to be some travel and then a donor, the likelihood of a donor minority donor being in the same town. Right. If it does happen, then that'd be awesome. But um, I'm thinking it would be an expensive endeavor, but it's something that needs to be done. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how much of a role do you think that that kind of unknown aspect of it plays? You know, the the fact that, you know, you're donating, but it's kind of like unknown. You know, you don't really know who the person is. You kind of just get what, like an email or a piece of paper or something kind of just telling you some basic information. Right. How much of a role do you think that played? plays in the process i don't know how what it plays what role it plays for others but for me it didn't play a role at all um and the reason why is because my first person was a 46 year old male as i said before and i just thought when my dad was 46 it was just he and i mm-hmm. and i was only 16 And if someone hadn't come forward for him, if he needed a bone marrow transplant at that age, I would have been devastated to lose my father. 
So I didn't second guess myself at all. Um, And then, of course, the second time, I just, I was older because the first time was in 2001. And that time in 2015, I, um, it was without question. Um, It's just, you know, just trying to save your fellow man. I would want someone to do it for me or my loved one. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. You want to give out your website one more time and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So the name of the nonprofit is Angels in Disguise. And you can go to the IRS website under nonprofit to look it up to make sure we are legitimate. And the website address is angels, A-N-G-E-L-S hyphen N-I-N hyphen disguise, D-I-S-G-U-I-S-E dot org. Awesome. awesome. Amir, any closing thoughts? Nope. All right. Indira, thank you so much for coming. Yep, thank you. It was you. a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Well, that was totally awesome, dude. Yeah, it was an amazing conversation. Yeah, I didn't even know before this. I think I said it a few times during the podcast, but it, it's crazy because this is a, a big problem, right? Yeah. You know, like she was saying, you know, I, I can see why she's so passionate about it. I mean, people are dying. Right. They're waiting to die. <laughs> right. Right. Well, there was the, I mean, she said African-Americans are the lowest rate it was 23 percent right rate, right right and then and that's african americans just black people in general right exactly followed by latinos with 40 something percent i think it was 46 46 yeah. percent and then you know native americans with like 50 something I right think it was 57 or whatever right right but then you know the the white demographic right being like 77 percent yeah right and then the big problem of diversity right right there's right. so much diversity in the african-american community Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We also we talked a bit afterwards too, which was really cool. We just kind of hit the issues yeah. of race a little more. Well, during the podcast, it might have seemed a bit off topic, but right. Yeah, I think she might have mentioned like, "Oh, we're kind of going over here. We're kind of going back over here now." But you know, this is a reality, though, right? <clears throat> Even if something like you know talking about racism and the history of America and things like that, it might seem off topic at first. The reality is that all this history and everything, everything affects everything else. It exactly. all contributes. It plays a role. It all plays a role, exactly, to make things the way they are yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. We will see you on next week's episode of Life with Josh and Amir.